0: If you have your Bibles, please turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Last week we went all the way through 11, um, looking at these numerous examples of these Old Testament saints and how at various points in their life they lived out their faith, their faith was manifested or revealed by what they did in response to it. Now they were called to go and they obeyed. So given all that, and I won't try to rehash chapter 11, it gets into the following chapter 12. It starts with wherefore. Boys, wherefore is just a big word. It means because. Seeing all that that's come before in chapter 11, talking about all these examples throughout the Old Testament, Wherefore seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. All right? Sometimes when I had read that, I would think about all these Old Testament saints standing around watching me. I don't think that's what it's meant there. This Witnesses is a legal term. It means testimony. It means you've got all these examples that you can be looking at to see the pattern. And what pattern? That's the pattern that we mentioned back all the way back in 6 and 11 and 12. um, We desire that every one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So this is an example of all these individuals who through faith and patience are waiting to inherit the promises. And so this is all the different witnesses and testimonies that you can look at. And again, in chapter 10, in 35 and 36, says, Cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience, that after you've done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come, and will not tarry. And now the just shall live by faith. And if you were keeping up with your Bible reading this week, I think we are in uh, Habakkuk. That phrase is in there. The just shall live by faith. Back at two six, I didn't know that before. So that was kind of fun in my Bible reading to make one more little connection of seeing, you know, we know that the writer of Hebrews quoted the Old Testament a whole bunch. Well, here's one more reference. But here, the just shall live by faith. So we're living by faith with patience until we receive the promises. Right. And we're to be imitators of those who've gone on before. And so you've got this great company in the Old Testament of those that you can look at and see where they live by faith. Now, that's not saying that you need to look at everything they did and imitate that. Not everything they did was right. But the things that are mentioned here in this chapter are the things that they did do right. This is when they obeyed God. They did what they were told. They did the hard thing um, rather than following just their entire life. Because they weren't perfect. The only model that you have that's completely perfect that you can look at 100% of the time is Christ. He was sinless. Okay. So this is the scenario. We're here, we've got this whole raft of folks who've lived the pattern that we're to live, a life of faith, with patience, enduring, during the will of God until we receive the promises. So what do we do? And this whole chapter is about application. Right? Saying, here's what's gone before, here's what I expect. Now here's what we do. First instruction Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Okay. You have a word picture here of running the race. Now, this word picture is going to be developed throughout this whole chapter, and so hang on to it. This is not a sprint. Boys and I were watching Lord of the Rings and the Little Dwarf. He was a natural sprinter, but he's wasted on cross-country, right? Yeah. Well, this is a cross-country race. This is a long-distance one. This is a marathon. This is one you'll be running, the distance of which will last the rest of your life. Okay? So, you ever seen a marathon? ever run one? I sure haven't, but I've seen them. Right? Have you ever seen any of them wearing a bunch of big heavy clothes? Anybody carrying suitcases? Anybody pushing a baby grand piano? No, right? What do they do? They got as light as clothing as possible, least weight. You know, maybe a little fanny pack with some snacks or something, and that's that's really it. And they're going on why? Because the race is the most important thing to them right now. Everything else that they've got back at home, all that other stuff, that's not the most important thing. They're just focusing on what they have to do, and so that's your your word picture when it says to lay down every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. Those are two different things, right? Not everything that we carry with us that hinders us in our walk towards Christ is a sin. But it can be a hindrance. It can be a distraction. And that word thwart means, uh, that word beset means to thwart us means it's like it's a it's like a competitor against us making a hindrance in all of our directions. Now, an example and I won't turn to it for the sake of time this morning. I've got a lot to cover, but back in 2 Kings chapter 7, the Syrians had camped around and were besieging Samaria, okay? Northern kingdom, right? And it was going bad. Terrible famine been there a long time. People were starting to really get bad where they're eating, you know, Dove dung and donkey heads. And it was going for really high prices. Right? Oh, yes. Gross. Right? Well, there was no food. And then the Lord sent a noise in the night that caused the Syrians to think there was another army out there. And they panicked. And they ran away. Okay. Now the next day, when some lepers discovered the, comp- the camp was empty or whatever, they go tell the king. And the king says, well, this has got to be a trap. right? They probably just went you know, around the corner and when we go out there to raid their camp, because we're really hungry and they've left their stuff, they're going to come out and they're going to kill us. And so there was five horses left in the city, because they'd already eaten all the others. Five left, and they take some, and they go and they follow the trail of this camp, of this army that's running away. You know what they found? The whole race, the whole you know route where the army went in? All the garments, all the baggage, all the vessels, the road was just littered with it. Why? As they were fleeing for their life, there was something more important than carrying that particular item. And so they could follow that trail of baggage all the way to the River Jordan and know that, yeah, this is legit. They actually left. All those things they threw down were weights. That's your your word picture for how we're going to... We've got to run our race, run our race, lay down every weight. And that, that lay down literally means to put aside, cast it off. I know some people when they train, they wear like weighted vest or whatever. When you're actually in the race, do you want to keep wearing that? No. no. It hinders you. Okay? So cast off your weights. So whatever it is. But not only weights, but also the sins. The sins that we engage in that hinder us. If you want to follow Christ, if you want to pursue the path of faith, and patiently enduring until you receive the promises, you cannot continue engaging in the old dead sins. Okay? You ever seen a convict run with handcuffs on his feet? No. Oh, brother, where are they? Right? doesn't go so well. They fall on their face a lot. Okay? Every time you continue to engage in those old dead sins, it's like you're handcuffing another layer of change to your feet. You're going to fall on your face. You cannot run swiftly. It is going to hinder you you know, and, and we could give a whole lot of examples of that. Um, just super briefly, how about um, drinking and partying and drugs and all those indulgences of the flesh that you may have indulged in before you were born again. But you can't continue in that now. You can't. We're to be filled with the Holy Spirit, not looking to fill ourselves with artificial substances to make us have escapes from our life. That We don't need to escape. We're walking towards our King. How about... Uh, covetousness, right? That's one preachers don't preach on very often. Covetousness. covetousness is a sin. That means loving stuff. It means loving your toys, your tools, your house, your car, your motorcycle, your, your whatever. Fill in the blank here. Whatever the thing that you love is, covetousness. That's, that's a sin. That will hinder you because that will be more important to you than what you have to do. Like money. Like money. That's a good example, right? The love of money the root of all evil, right? Not money itself. Money's just a tool. But it's when you love it, when you desire it, when you covet it, when you make it more important than anything else. Okay? Yeah. All right. Okay, so those are kind of obvious. How about another one? How about uh, a bitter attitude? How about unforgiveness? How about carrying your past? Either what you've done or what's been done unto you. All those things will hinder your walk. They'll hinder your run, rather. Because it doesn't say walk, it says, let us run. Run with patience. Again, that's the pattern, right? We're living by faith. We've got patiently enduring, doing the will of God until we receive the promises. So here we're to run. Now, this run, the Greek word looks kind of like trek. And so I was like, oh well, maybe this is like a long distance hike. Now, if you go look at every other spot where that run comes up, the disciples, you know, the tomb was empty. You know what they did? They ran. right? this wasn't a leisurely walk. There were several, you can look up whenever that shows up. It's a, it's an actual running motion, right? Not a not just a, a jaunt, right? Let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Who picks the race course? God. Bingo. God does. God picks the course, not you. He's the finish line, he's the destination. You have to run according to his course. You stray off of his path, it's gonna hurt. Okay? So, how do we run? Got this word picture. How do we run? Well, we've laid down, we've gotta lay down these weights, gotta lay down these sins. How do we run? Well, it says with patience. So we've got to have temperance, self-control, being even killed striving to maintain that steady pace. Right? Stability is something that we should be striving for. Not waffling back and forth, right? The double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And so <coughs> we should have an exercise of our body, of our mind, and of our heart and how we go about serving the Lord. It's diligence. It's it, it is there's effort involved. This ain't just going to happen. You're not going to wake up and say, Okay! Right? There's, there's, there's self-control and training involved. Right? That is the pattern of our life. Until you receive the promises. <clears throat> how long is that going to be? Your whole life! Right? So it can't just be a sprint and then a sit-down. Or a sprint and a sit-down. You need to be constantly moving forward. Okay? And while you're doing that, and how are you going to stay motivated, it depends on what you're focused on. If you're focused on everything in this world, you won't be running with diligence. You won't be running with patience. You'll be moving off to the side after it. But rather, what does it say to be focused on? It says, verse 2, Looking unto Jesus, the author, or captain, and finisher of our faith. That's who you're focused on. You know, sometimes when I visualize this, I think I mentioned this last week, I would I visualize that Jesus is walking in front of me and I'm following behind his shoulders, right? I don't think that's what's sitting here. Because if you finish this verse, it says He sat down on the right hand of God. I think what you're looking at is you're looking at the throne room of God. And you're looking at him sitting there on the right hand of the throne of the Majesty on High, and He's looking at you. And He's cheering you on, and He's excited, and He's ready to see you in His perfect timing. But that's who you're looking at. You're going to your Savior. Because He is better than anything else this world holds. Looking unto Jesus, the author, the captain, the salvation, and finisher of our faith. He completed it. We have a joy in our faith that many don't understand yet. That it's secure. Secure in the work of Jesus Christ. Now look at the pattern that He gave us. We talked about those testimonies of those who have gone before that were looking for a pattern. Look at His pattern. Who for the joy that was set before Him... So there was a joy that He had to get to. What did He do before He got there? He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. So there was a physical, emotional, mental, spiritual element to actually going through the cross. And then there was the, the reproach element... He was mocked. He was rejected. I mean, So there was the direct how it impacted him and then the impact of how others were responding to him, that he went through all of that because he saw the joy on the other side and he reached it and he sat down and he's the finisher of your faith. What's that pattern for you and I? There's going to be hard times here. Absolutely. They're going to impact us. There will be a cost of following Christ. And not everybody's going to encourage you. In fact, there's going to be a lot who won't. Right? There is a reproach. There is a shame that people will heap on upon you because the world hates Christ. And he told you that they would. And if they hated the master, you're not better than the master. You shouldn't expect to receive better treatment. So that's the pattern. But he did it because he could see what was ahead. He was looking forward to the joy of securing the salvation of all His people, now you get to look for the joy of seeing Him who did that, the finisher. Alright? He is set down on the right handed the throne of God. We won't go back to all of what that sitting down means, but you get that back from when we were talking about the high priest. That there was no place for the high priest to sit down because his work was never done. That's why this is a perfect high priest, because he offered himself once for sin, He didn't have to give a separate sacrifice because he was already pure, right? And when he finished the work, he actually put away the sin, and he was able to sit down, which signifies the work was accomplished. So that's where he is, reigning and sitting, waiting until his enemies become under his footstool. All right? So... Now, I want you to remember that these Hebrews that he's writing to, he's trying to encourage them to stand fast, right? There are forces and people who want them to give up, want them to walk away, who want you to walk away, right? So, when you're discouraged, for consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. All right, contradiction. He he endured strife of sinners against himself. He endured disobedience of sinners against himself. He is the Creator God, and here is his creation scorning him, hitting him, spiting, uh, spitting upon him, and smiting him. He endured that. What's the pattern for us? Enduring that scorn, enduring that reproach of sinners upon ourselves. So, if you focus on him and what he went through and what he endured, what lest ye be wearied and faint in your mind? So, if you're not focused on him, what's well, you likely to happen? You're likely to be discouraged. You like to do the oh, woe is me, this is too hard. I gotta look for something easier. No. Consider him. Focus on him. And then it really gives some kind of hard context. Here in verse 4. It says, Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. you haven't you haven't been really tested yet. Consider him and what he went through. Not only did he resist against giving in to sin and just saying, "All right, throwing up in my hands," it wasn't just at the first draw of blood because he was whipped and and then hit and all these other things. He went all the way through to his death, right? And you can see that pattern back with some of the Old Testament saints. Back in eleven, said in thirty-five, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might <laughs> obtain a better resurrection. A torture, the way to get out of that torture was, well, you just had to sin. You had to say, whatever something wasn't true, quit prophesying, whatever it was in the scenario, but they're resisting against doing the wrong thing, even unto blood. And he's telling these Hebrew readers, you haven't resisted unto blood yet. And I haven't either. And you probably haven't either. So we're still in the baby stages of being tried and tested. So don't consider what we've gone through and don't consider what your friends have gone through consider what Christ has gone through keep that mindset consider him all right? for ye have not yet resisted unto blood striving against sin all right? so there are going to be hardship in this world sometimes these hardships come from outside of us right? sometimes because just other people's reaction to us trying to follow God okay? that's, that's fine expect that Sometimes they come from God in response to some of those handcuffs you've been putting around your feet. The chastening. He says, You've forgotten. Ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. And he's going to quote here Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. It says, Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Alright, now I want to go back and uh, look at that in Proverbs because there's just a slightly different wording there um, that I think is useful. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. My son despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth. Even as a father, the son in whom he delighteth. When God chastens you for your sins, it's because He delights in you. It's because He loves you. Because He cares for you. Okay? For whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth and scourgeth every son he receiveth. For if he receive chastening of the Lord, he dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Lord chasteneth not? Okay. Who doesn't get chastened? God. Who does God not chasten? People who are not his children. The illustration here, verse 8 says, But if ye be without chastisement, then all "...which all are partakers, then ye are bastards and not sons." It's a Bible word. It means illegitimate. Illegitimate son. You can see that in the Old Testament, an example of Isaac versus Ishmael. Isaac was the promised child. He was the legitimate son of Abraham. And God would chasten all of his descendants over and over and over and over and over again. You ever hear of a single example of God chastening Ishmael or any of his descendants? No. It's the type for that. He was the illegitimate. He was a wild man. He God grew him into a great nation. But his hand was against every man and every man was against him. There was no chastening. Okay? So... Some of the hardships we endure come from outside. Some of it comes, let's be honest, some of it comes from the baggage and the sins that we are not willing to lay down. So you're running your marathon and you're pushing your baby grand piano, your favorite pet sin, whatever it is, or weight, and you get up to speed and you're moving, you feel like, hey, I've got some momentum. You know what the Lord's probably going to do? Put some potholes some speed bumps, some rumble strips. And when that wheel gets stuck, what's going to happen to your face? You're going to smash into that thing, right? You're going to get a bloody nose and busted teeth because you were pushing or carrying something that you ought not have been carrying. And what's your temptation at that point? Well, get mad at God because i got a bloody nose. No. you got a bloody nose because you were doing the wrong thing and God loved you enough to point it out. Okay? It's a... It's a perspective. We're not to fuss with God when He corrects us for doing wrong. And He's going to give us the pattern that we see from that in, in our natural lives by using our, our natural fathers. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us. Okay? You were born here, you had a father, and to some extent, whether good, bad, or indifferent, they would get on to you and what was your response we gave them reverence we acknowledged that our fathers had the authority to get on to us right we were subject to them shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the father of spirits and live and so if the pattern is if you're going to honor your natural father and understand he's got the right to correct you as a father Well, if your perfect Heavenly Father corrects you, you need to understand that you're subject to Him and not complain and back talk. I don't know about y'all, but you ever get back talk during a spanking? Did it go so well? Sure didn't for me. Right? And so, we need to be subject unto the Father and recognize that He is right, He is just, He is faithful. And when He chastens us for our sins, it's for our good. He's not returning the wrath and judgment due for those sins. No, that was borne by Christ. But he is teaching. That's what it says. For verily they, our natural fathers, for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. Generally, while you're still in their household and under their authority, they chastened you after their pleasure. That's kind of a broad term, and that's not really a great thing. It's kind of, well, am I annoyed enough to deal with this, or am I going to ignore it, or all the different ways that we as fathers fail. Basically, of not addressing things correctly, that's described as being after our pleasure. But when God corrects us, there's no failings involved. It's not because He lost His temper with us, or He was hungry, or all those other bad excuses that I have when I discipline incorrectly, not out of love and teaching, "...they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but He, God the Father, for our profit, for our benefit He chastens us." Why? "...that we might be partakers of His holiness." The more of those weights that you lay down, the more of those sins that you lay down and quit handcuffing yourself with, the more you become a partaker of His holiness, His path, His righteousness... That's what we're pursuing, right? The kingdom of God, His path and His righteousness, that's what we want. We want to be conformed to the image of Son. Every day we want to be more like Him than we were. Okay, And one of the ways that He gets us along that path is by chasing us, by teaching us, by correcting us, right? That we might be partakers of His holiness. That's the reason. That's the reason that God chastens us. So you can be a partaker of His holiness. Now, is chastening fun? Take a survey of all the little boys right here. Who likes getting a whooping? Nobody. Right. Why? Because it hurts. Right? Yeah. I'm not up here saying that it's fun to be chastened by the Lord. I'm not saying that at all. Now, no chastening for the present seemed to be joyous. All right. The Lord's whooping off on me. Yay! Well, you, you, you... It's not fun. I get that. But grievous. Nevertheless, this is the perspective you and I need to maintain while we're thinking about that, while we're going through it. What's the long-term perspective? Why is he doing this? Afterward, after the chastening, it yieldeth, it produces, it grows. Y'all talk about yields in your farming. It produces the peaceable, the description of what kind of fruit? Peaceable fruit of righteousness the Lord will chasten us that we be more righteous in our day to day life it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby that word exercised is the same one we talked about earlier a few chapters about training right those who are exercised in the word of righteousness, who have their sense trained, right? You're studying diligently in your word. That's a way that you can grow in your discernment and your maturity. There's another way that you can grow, and that's when the Lord exercises you. And I trust I trust you understand. He is a rigorous coach. Right? He will exercise them. Why? Because you are His sons and daughters, His children, because He loves you. He will correct you. All right. So, going forward with this word picture, you've got the runner, right? Imagine you're you on the sidelines, you're watching a runner, and they're kind of doing this. You've got their arms down, knees are kind of bent, they're floppy, they're kind of zigzagging across the road, they're whacking into their neighbors. Would you say that guy's he's running their face really well? No, it looked like someone who's kind of discouraged. Liable to give up, right? What if you know start arguing the folks around him? Well, you hush, you run faster you just do it, right? That's a word picture that we want to avoid. The discouraged, tired, demoralized runner whose arms are dropped by their sides, her knees are all floppy, weaving all over the road, bouncing folks into the ditch, arguing those around them. Right? What should we be doing? Verse 12, we're continuing this word picture. Says, wherefore lift up the hands which hang down. Now go watch some of those army boys run, right? Got their arms pumping, right? Right, Zach. Lift up your arms, hanging down. Lift up the feeble knees. Make straight paths with your feet. Lest that which be turned out of the way should be—lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but rather let it be healed. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. All right. So this, this you've got this different image, this different word picture of that steady runner. Right. will quit popping those bottles. It's loud. All right. So you've got a steady runner whose arms are pumping, his legs are pumping. He knows where he's going. He's moving with purpose. He's moving in the direction of his Lord, his Master. He's not jostling his neighbors because he's weaving all over the place, but he's got a steady path. And he's probably lending that arm of support to those that are weaker beneath him. Instead of carabining off of him, you know, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way. That turned out of the way literally means to be ricocheted. Right? Bounce off the path. When you and I are not walking faithfully towards God, when we're straying side to side, there's an impact on others. You can discourage others and you can lead them way off, particularly the weak those who are less mature, those who are going through harder times, those who, whatever. We need to be faithful examples and help heal those around us, support and encourage. And while we're doing it, what's our perspective? We're looking diligently. Follow, excuse me, following peace with all men. We're not arguing with those around us, right? That's not the path. That's not uh, godly wisdom. We looked at that back in James. We're following peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Pursuing peace. thats Pursuing peace involves external peace, right? You're pursuing peace with those outside of you. And then internally, you're pursuing holiness. Making sure that what you're doing and saying and thinking and dwelling on is pure and righteous and good and edifying and glorifies God. Still with me on this word picture? Yeah. Good. Alright. Now, we're going to get some warnings. Verse 15. Warnings. It says, Looking diligently. That's another way of saying, Beware. Be on guard. Look out for this. Heads up. Looking diligently. lest There's some bad things that could occur. Lest any man fail of the grace of God. Any man lack of the grace of God. Any man who's not holding on to that grace of God and starts doing those things that are hindrances and start gathering those weights and gathering those sins. Lest any man fail the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you and thereby many be defiled. All right? Root of bitterness. We talked about those things that we're carrying. Are we carrying around Bitterness? Well, if you've got that planted in your attitude and your behavior, what's going to happen? It's this going to show up? Roots are underground. It's internal. It blooms. It shows forth. And what happens? Many are defiled or contaminated. One sinner can cause a lot of harm. <clears throat> so not the direct quote from Proverbs. Y'all can go find it. Um, if we allow bitterness to take root in our hearts, it's going to negatively impact us. It's going to negatively impact our church. It's going to negatively impact our families. Okay. Take heed. Beware. Beware, verse 16, lest there be any fornicator or profane person. All right. There is no path of righteousness that involves fornication. It just doesn't. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person. That profane, that mean is... Um, unholy, basically. And it gives the example here of Esau. As Esau, who for one morsel of meat, sold his birthright. For you know how that afterwards he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. All right. So what is this a type of? Right? What did Moses not do back in 11? Choosing, uh, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect under the recompense of the reward. So an unholy person, a profane person, looks at those promises way down the road. and says, Nah, I'd rather just have those pleasures of sin for a season. We cannot do that. Okay. Now, there are two, two ways, really, to read these verses. Just looking diligently. And I think both are correct. The two ways are looking at of One, of guarding against myself. Am I operating where I'm not holding on to the grace of the Lord and pursuing that and living that out? Am I allowing roots of bitterness to spring up, which may be defiling others. Am I tempted or putting myself in a position where I could be tempted to engage in fornication or any of these profane things? I need to be on guard against that myself. The other thing here in, in general is looking diligently on who you're around. You may claim to be following... Christ. But the Lord who can see all the way down between soul and spirit, the divider, He knows who's not really. We need to look diligently. Because if we are associating with those who give lip service to Christ but their life follows this pattern, we need to beware and avoid it. And then it's going to give you an illustration of the two mountains. It's going to compare Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. For ye are not come unto the mount that might be that might be touched. Ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched. Right? So, big picture, you're talking about the difference in the Old Testament law and the New Testament. Right? Under the Old Testament, when they received the law over in Exodus 19, it was a mountain that you could physically see. It was a mountain that could be touched. That meant it's physical, right? Now, could you actually go touch it? You jolly well better not, or they're gonna stab you through with a dart, because God said, You cannot approach. You know and if the way is shut, you may not pass. That's the idea here. And when they gave the law, it was this terrifying scene. When the Lord gave the law, it says that it burned with fire nor the blackness and darkness of the tempest. And I'm saying this all in the negative, saying that this is not what you've come to. This is what what happened before. So it was burned with fire, and blackness and darkness of tempest, and the sound of a trumpet. So you had this massively loud trumpet, and the voice of words, which they which heard and treated, that the words should not be spoken to them anymore. So God spoke, and the nation of Israel was there, and they heard it, and they were so scared, they said, please don't let him talk to us anymore. Moses, you go talk to him loud trumpet, there's a tempest, there's a thunderstorm, there's fire coming down. It was, it was terrifying. It says, For they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with the dart. And so terrible is the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. Right? That's your picture uh, from, from the Old Testament when the Lord gave the law. And you can see that over in Exodus 19. We'll just flip to that for a minute. Exodus chapter 19. The Lord tells them that they need to prepare themselves um, to come unto Him, that He's going to make them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation... And he said, I will come unto thee in a thick cloud, and the people will hear when I speak to thee and believe thee forever. He said, Go to the people, tell them to sanctify, be ready on the third day. Set bounds around the mountain, take heed to yourselves, as you go not up into the mount, or touch the border of it. Whosoever toucheth the mount shall surely be put to death. There shall not be a hand, touch it, but he surely shall be stoned or shot through, whether it be beast or man. And it shall not live. When the trumpet soundeth long then shall they come up to the mount. And Moses went down to the people and did so. It came to pass, this is verse 16, on the third day of the morning, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount, and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud, so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. And Moses brought forth the people of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the nether part of the mount. So there is far away from the mount as they can possibly get and Mount Sinai was all together on a smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked greatly and when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder Moses spake and God answered him by a voice alright saying that's not who you're coming to. That is a terror. That is a fear. That, my friends, is a type that points to the judgment that will come. The purpose of the law was for to teach us how much of a sinner we really are. Right? It was the schoolmaster to understand why we had a need of a Savior and that there was no one who could keep that law perfectly. And so here you've got all this dark and terror and fear that's going to come into play on that last judgment day and it's going to come down upon the heads of every single one for whom Christ didn't die and righteously so. It says, but that's not who you're come to now. And that's that's interesting now for it says, ye are come unto Mount Zion. So we've got this word picture. We're looking forward ahead and seeing Christ sitting on the right hand of God, right? But now, presently, we've come... Mount Zion. Now how do you reconcile those two? Well, here's what I'm thinking about. Over in Ephesians chapter 2, let's go back to that and look at it. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 4 through 7, it says, But God who is rich in mercy for His great love, wherewith He loved us, and He just described us being dead in trespasses and sins, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are ye saved. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. And then earlier, back in Hebrews um let's see if we can find it. 16 4 16 Hebrews chapter 4 verse 6 says let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find help grace to find help in time of need you don't have to wait to the end of your journey to come to the throne of grace right by him giving you spiritual life you have access now to that heavenly kingdom that's where you go we're made to sit together in heavenly places you have access to the heavenly kingdom can you see it right now no, one day you will. And so when it says now you are coming to the Mount Zion, he's saying that's where you can presently come and attend. You have access. <coughs> by the way, by the path that Jesus made with his own body, you have access to the Father, and that's how you've come to Mount Zion now. Now, Zion is the, literally over in Jerusalem, there's a Zion, the Mount Zion that's right outside of it. Okay? And so it's a type here. That physical mountain is not what we're talking about. We're talking about the real, the heavenly Jerusalem. Right? That's a type, this is the real. But ye are coming to Mount Zion under the city of the living God. Right? God said he was going to prepare a city, and he has prepared a city for his people. Jesus said he was going to prepare a place for you, He'll come back and take you to it. That's the city, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, not the one over there that's you know got bombs and things going off all the time, but the real Jerusalem. To the innumerable company of angels. Now, innumerable, the Greek word literally means ten thousand, um, but the word is myriad. So it's an untold, just incomprehensible number of angels. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn. Who's the firstborn? Jesus. This is His church. He's the head of church. He is—he uh, he fills it all in all. There's nothing else needed other than Him And those that he has bought into his family, that's his church. And so you've got your coming to Mount Zion where there's innumerable angels. You've got the General Assembly and Church of the Firstborn. This is every other child of God who has access to that, whether they're dead and already there. I think that's the uh, spirits of just men made perfect. Or now while you're living, where you go to in prayer, which are written in heaven. So General Assembly and the Church of the Firstborn, which are written in heaven. So these these are the saints. This is you and me. "...and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect..." Again, I think that's referring to the saints who've already passed on who are dead. "...and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel." So he said, feel the difference in these two word pictures, these two mountains... You who are tempted to go back to the Old Testament law and try and serve under the ceremonial law, what was that mountain like? That mountain was terrible. You didn't want to hear his voice. I mean, if you got too close, you'd be stoned through. There was no close access. There was thunder and lightning and fire. It was scary. Like, even Moses was scared. <laughs> Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake, right? That's what you want to go back to? But what have you been given? What do you have access to now is Mount Zion, the heavenly city where you've got God, the judge of all and all your saints and all the brothers and sisters and Jesus Himself, the mediator of that new covenant, right? the holds some of this letter. is talking about the new covenant, the new the new high priest, everything that's new and better and better and better. Jesus is there. And He's got better promises that that covenant is based on. And this is what you're waiting for. You're faithfully enduring, doing the will of God, patiently waited, living by faith until you receive the promises. And He's there to Jesus, the mediator of the covenant. And the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. If you go back to, to Genesis, you know, God would talk to Cain and he'd talk about what Abel's blood was crying out from the ground. That was in uh, Genesis 4. Cain has murdered Abel at this point. Um the Lord asked him, Where's where's your brother? I know not, and my brother's keeper. What hast thou done? said God. The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now thou art cursed from the earth. Okay? What do you think Abel's blood was crying out? It doesn't say exactly. We have to kind of speculate here. We know Jesus' blood had a much better saying. So I think what it was crying out for was justice. Lord, avenge me. I've been wrongfully killed. I want justice. Right? Jesus' blood didn't cry out for justice. Because if Jesus was crying out for justice, you know what that means for all of us? We should be sent to hell. That would be just. But what did He say as He was being nailed to the cross? Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If He could say that to the folks who are actively pounding nails into His hand, what have you done that He couldn't say that to? You're His children. He's put it all away. That's who you're going to. His blood of speaking of forgive them. This one is... Mine. This one is covered. Speaking better things than if able. So if that's who you're going to, and that's the picture, see that you refuse not him that speaketh. Remember? Go all the way back to chapter 1. God who in sundry times and diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. He's the one who's speaking. Don't refuse him. Don't Cast it off. Don't ignore it. Don't reject it. For if they escaped not who refused him that spake on earth, Old Testament law, there was no escape for ignoring that. Much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him who speaketh from heaven. All right. Whose voice then shook the earth. Old Testament standard. There was an earth shaking. There was earthquakes going on. He says, oh, but we've got something even greater magnitude here. But he hath promised, again, all these promises we've got, this is something that's to come. His promise, and he's going to quote here, Haggai 2 and 6. But now he hath promised, quoting, saying, quote, yet once more I will shake, not the earth only, he's done that, but also the heaven. He's going to shake the heaven and the earth. What's he pointing towards? pointing towards the putting away of this creation. And this word, yet once more, so he's explaining, alright, why did he say yet once more? It means, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken, that which is capable of being shaken, that which is temporary. It means it's going to be put away. Yet once more. Not going to happen again, one more time, and then everything that can be shaken, that which can be put away, is going to be put away. And what's all going to be left? That which cannot be shaken. That's so what it says. These, those things that are shaken, as of those things that are made, that, those things which cannot be shaken, shall remain. That which is immortal. Right? That last judgment day, your mortal body, whether you're dead or alive at that time, is going to be changed. And it will not go away. This whole creation, heaven and earth, it will pass away. And He will put something in its place that does not pass away, will not be shaken. Wherefore, so because of that, because everything that you see, all those things that distract you, all those things that cause you to sin, all those things that you indulge in, that are not good, not healthy, those are all going to go away. And we're looking forward to the promise of that which will remain. And that promise is a kingdom. Wherefore, are we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved cannot be shaken, cannot be taken away. We've received a kingdom. Let us have grace. Hold on to that grace. Whereby we... Why? Why do we do that? Just so we can have a you know pleasant jaunt through the world? No. Why do we have grace? Hold on to grace that we may... Whereby we may serve God. Serve Him in a sorry, low-down manner? No. Serve Him acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Reverence and godly fear. All right, acceptably. Um, that means quite agreeably. Please Him well, to be well-pleasing. Let him. Let us serve Him in a way that pleases Him with reverence. Reverence has the idea of with downcast eyes. Right? You got someone chin all lifted up. That's not how we need to be approaching God. All right? This is an air of self-confidence and pride and all the things that the world will say is a good thing. No, brothers and sisters. We need to approach God with awe. Understanding that He is truly awesome, and and we should have a fear of Him, and and very much uh, a healthy respect, fear and reverence, godly fear, um, that godly fear and caution, piety, your, your dutifulness. Right? Why? Verse twenty nine tells you why. For our God is a consuming fire. Now, if you don't want to think about God as a consuming fire, let me give you just four different examples, um, and they show up more than this. Now, back in Hebrews 10 and verse 27. But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. How about let's go back to the Old Testament. Exodus 24. And 17, Exodus 24 and 17, the sight of the glory of the Lord was like devouring fire, or consuming fire, on the top of the mountain, in the eyes of the children of Israel. Deuteronomy 4, 24. Deuteronomy 4, 24. For the Lord thy God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. We need to go to the New Testament. We'll go to Second Thessalonians, uh, chapter one, and verse eight. I'll start with verse seven. And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. And He shall come to be glorified in His saints and to be admired in all them that believe because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Do we have a high enough regard or fear for God? Probably not. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Now I could preach a whole sermon on chapter 13 and I'm going to not. I'm going to leave this in kind of high level outline fashion. I want you all to go through and think about chapter 13 today because it answers the question of how do we serve Him acceptably. This is a good long list of ways that you can apply if you want to faithfully serve God in a manner that's well-pleasing. Number one... Let brotherly love continue. Now, if there will be brotherly love, that's because you're born again and you love the brethren. That's a sign that you are a child of God if you love the brethren. What does it say? Let it continue. What does that mean? That means you're all in the flesh and there's a temptation for it not to continue. You want to please Him well and serve Him how you ought to? Let brotherly love continue. That's number one. Number two, hospitality. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Best example of that would be old Lot, right? He practically forced those two guys to come into his house because he knew that it wasn't safe in his town for them to stay out in the streets, right? He did not take no for an answer. So we need to be hospitable to entertain strangers. Now, whether that's in our home or whether that's here at church when someone comes in who's never been here, you need to be hospitable, right? Is that the easiest thing to do? No. (laughs) That's all right. Number three, remember them that are in bonds as bound with them and them that suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. So, how do we serve God? You associate those, associate with those who are rejected because they're following God. Now, at this time, folks were getting thrown in jail because they were a Christian, right? Saul was a chief persecutor. He'd haul your butt to jail if you're trying to follow Jesus, right? He says, associate with those people. Continue to be mindful of them. Show mercy to them. Remember them as if you're bound with them. Not trying to dis- Well, I don't know about those guys. Right? Right? As if you're bound with them, and then that suffer adversity, maltreatment, as if being yourself also, as being yourself also in the body. So it's being mindful, caring for, showing regard and mercy for those who are suffering for Christ's sake. Okay, number four, marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. Plain statement. There's a lot of negative things said about uh, the marriage bed or the bed outside of marriage. Marriage bed is undefiled, it is good, it is honorable. The Lord designed it that way. I don't have any other difference of opinion on that. But outside of that, it's unacceptable. You want to serve God acceptably and with reverence and godly fear, there cannot be any fornication. The whoremongers, that means one who deals in the selling. You know, fishmonger is one who sells fish. So whether that is the buying or selling, and adulterers, God will judge. All right? Cannot continue. Let your conversation be without covetousness, right? You want to have a hindrance to your walk? Be covetous. Allow that to consume you. Let your conversation be without covetousness. Your conversation, that's just not what you're saying. That's your whole manner of life. Everything that you do, it cannot be centered on stuff. And be content with such things as ye have. Why? As ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. So God has promised, I'll never leave thee or forsake thee. So you don't have to love stuff or feel like you need that stuff to be safe or secure or have whatever else. You've got God. You've got enough. And because of that, verse 6, six says, So we may boldly say, this is quoting in Psalm 118 verse 6, The Lord is my helper, and I shall not fear what men shall do to me. So again, this whole context is there's hardship coming upon you. You may lose that job opportunity because you're trying to follow God. You may lose that business. Whatever deal, there's, there's consequences for following God faithfully. That's okay. That's good. It puts you in a better perspective because if you had all those things that you wanted anyway, guess what? You'd be adding up baggage and adding up sin and hindering your own race. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man shall do to me. We can boldly say that. Okay? Alright, so that's up to, that's the fifth. Keep count. Number six, mark them that lead you, that point you to Christ. Remember them that have the rule over you. This is pastors, this is elders, who have spoken unto you the word of God. You know, those who are, who are teaching. What should you do? Whose faith follow, right? The imitators, right? You imitate those who, living by faith and patiently endure, doing the will of God until they receive the promises. If that's what they're doing, follow them considering the end of their conversation. What is the end of their conversation? Well, what's the end of the race? Jesus. Does He change? No. Jesus, the same yesterday, today, and forever. So is it because they're such great men? No. It's because they're trying to faithfully follow and point you to Him. Remember them. Be mindful of them. Call to recollection. Alright? Verse 9 through 14. um, This is avoiding changes to the truth. Okay. Be not carried away with strange and diverse For diverse and strange doctrines. For it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats, which have not profited them, which are occupied thereby. So again, this is a direct challenge against those who are calling you back to worship under the Old Testament Judaism structure. Where you've got the meats and the washings and all those things. He said, that's not what you need to be focused on. Those have not profited them. They didn't do the job. Right? We had this whole book saying that they weren't good enough. They were just pointing to the real. Don't go back. Hold on to what which is true, what is right, which is honest, right? And be diligent to know what that is. And then once you know it, hang on to it, right? For we have an altar... So versus that one, you know, they've got their physical altar where the priests are still sacrificing and doing their job. Now, this is before 70 AD, before the temple was destroyed. We have an altar where they have no right to eat, which served the tabernacle, all right? So there are, those priests are still in existence at this time. They were still doing their job. He said, we have an altar where they, can't, they don't have a right to eat because they're not the priests that we report to, right? We've got the high priest. For the bodies of those beasts... Whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Right? That was the pattern. In the Old Testament, when you brought in that blood by the high priest, what was it? All they brought was a little sprinkle of blood. What did they do with the rest of the body? They carried it out of the tent and burned it. why did they do that? Because it points to Jesus being outside of natural Israel, and that they're gonna have to go outside of that to be with him. And there's a an reproach for that. Right? You were to be with the bird the bodies and everything, that was that was gross. Right? There was a, co- a cost. All right, Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Right, He went out of the camp. Let us therefore go unto him without the camp of natural Israel, bearing his reproach. There was reproach and scorn heaped upon him. We're following him. It's going to be heaped on us too. If we're faithfully serving him, If the world says, man, you're doing a good job, then there's probably a problem with our walk. Okay, There there is. Why do we go out? Because here, for here, we have no continuing city. This is not where we're putting down our stakes. This is not where we're putting down our flag and saying, this is it. You know, this is a nice building, but this is not the building that I want to spend the rest of eternity in. Right? This is is a nice country. We have a nice country. A lot of good freedoms. A lot of good things. A lot of problems. But still, this is not it. Right? We hear we have no continuing city. Continuing city is one that can't be shaken. Right? All the cities here are going to be shaken. They're going to be wiped up and wiped away. But we seek one to come. That new Jerusalem. That heavenly Jerusalem. By Him, therefore... Who's the Him? Jesus Christ. The one that we're going out of the camp to. The one that we're bearing reproach. By Him, let us therefore offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to His name, alright? So it's not saying go back and, and do the old sacrifices in the Old Testament law. Don't do that. Rather, as you're now kings and priests, there are sacrifices that you can give on a daily basis, just like the pattern of before was there was daily sacrifices. Well, on a daily basis, as you're a priest reporting under Jesus, you need to be given a sacrifice of praise with your lips. And praise is worship, but specifically it says with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, thanks to His name. You have a lot to be thankful for. If you don't think that there's a problem, start writing a journal. Continually. Let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, ongoing basis. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. So that's one thing we can be doing, giving sacrifice, sacrifice of praise. What else? But to do good, that's another sacrifice. Do good. That's not be good. Right? Very different thing. Doing good is actively looking for opportunities to minister and to serve. Doing good and to communicate and to communicate forget not. It's not saying don't forget to talk. Sometimes as husbands we would maybe wish something that simple. No. But to communicate means to give. I mean it's not only, okay, I'm willing to pull over and do good and help you change your tire, but to communicate means to put your money where your mouth is. Right? To communicate, forget not. Knowing that there is a need and that we can meet it with what He's blessed us with, right? Those are three different sacrifices that we can give to God now. You don't have to go back to the Old Testament law and bring the lamb or anything. These are sacrifices that you can give. And of such sacrifices, God is what? Well pleased. What do we want to do? We want to have grace where we receive God where we may serve God acceptably, with reverence and godly fear. Alright? So, offer your sacrifices. Learn contentment. Mark your leaders. Avoid changes of the truth. Offer your sacrifices of praise, doing good, communicate. Alright, what else? Uh, this would be number nine. Obey your leaders. So what earlier it was just remember them. Call to mind what they say. You know, Follow their pattern. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. Why? For they watch for your souls as they that must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief for that... Is unprofitable for you. So if they have to give an account with grief, that means, Lord, I told them the word and they chose not to obey. The grief is not because he didn't do his job, it's because you didn't heed it. Whereas with joy is that I gave the word and they heeded it. Okay? So how do you acceptably serve God as well pleasing? Obey them to have a rule over you. Just in anything that they say? No, it needs to be grounded in Scripture. right? Because what is the end of their, their conversation? Jesus Christ. Same yesterday, today, and forever. All right. And then he ends the letter with pray for us. Pray for us, we trust, we have a good conscience, and all things willing to live honestly. So he's not saying pray for us that we can live honestly. He's saying I, we trust that we're already doing that. But we want you to specifically do something. I beseech you rather that you do this that I may be restored to you the sooner. So the writer here is in bonds. He wants... I want to see you again. Pray that the Lord will bless that to happen. Okay? And then he's going to end his kind of closing um, request for them. What does he pray to God for them? Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant... Everlasting, not the first one that was going to go away, but the better one... Through the blood of the everlasting covenant, do what? Make you perfect. Make you complete in every good work. Why? To do His will. Serve Him acceptably. Make you complete in every good work to do His will. Working in you that which is well-pleasing in His sight. And what are some of the ways that He can do that? He can do that by chastening you. Working in you in a way that's well-pleasing to His sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And I beseech you, brethren, suffer this the word of exhortation. He says, listen to what I've written. Suffer it. Allow it to be so. For I have written a letter unto you in a few words. 11 short, 13 short chapters. Right? Written a few words. Know ye that our brother Timothy is set at liberty. Now was Timothy in bonds with the Hebrew writer and he was set free? I don't know. Whether he was at a post back at Ephesus you know, leading there and he was set free? I don't know. Um, it says he was set at liberty. With whom, if he comes shortly, I will see you. So saying, if I if I hitch a ride with Timothy, I'll come see you soon. We don't know. Salute all them that have the rule over you. Say hello, and all the saints. They of Italy salute you. Where is the letter written? Most likely from Italy. All right. Grace be with you all. Amen. Written to the Hebrews. We're done.